Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. We have an interesting show today, a little bit different than normal because I have a very well-known, high-profile, well-credentialed economist on the show today, uh, Dr. Lawrence Kotlikoff. And I think economists see the world a little bit differently than most other people, including people in the financial space. So it's an interesting conversation. And I have a long list of questions that I can't possibly finish on today's guest interview. But I hope you enjoy it. There's some interesting perspective in terms of retirement and social security and whether you should hold debt, pay it off early, how long you should wait until you retire or should you even retire at all. So it was an interesting conversation offline and online. But anyway, enjoy today's show. And if you have any comments or thoughts about it, you know, by all means, contact me at PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com and just let me know if you'd like more guests like Larry, who I'm bringing on the show here today. But with that, I hope you enjoy the show and we will see how this unfolds. Welcome back. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Lawrence Kotlikoff. He is the New York Times bestselling author of many books. He is a professor of economics at Boston University, a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a fellow of the Econometric Society, a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research, and last but not least, president of Economic Security Planning, Inc., a company that specializes in financial planning software. He has so many more credentials, I can go on and on. The Economist magazine did rank him among the 25 most influential economists in the world. He is the number one New York Times bestselling author of a book called Get What's Yours, The Secrets of Maximizing Your Social Security, and a more recent book, Money Magic, which I literally just ordered, and I've been reading the book summary, so I'll be honest, I haven't read the whole book yet. Money Magic and Economist's Secrets to More Money, Less Risk, and a Better Life. And with that, Larry, welcome to the show. Uh, great to be with you, Marco. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you on. I've been looking forward to this. I'm going to tell you that this will probably be, not be our typical or conventional conversation that we have on this show. You're coming from a slightly different perspective, I think, on some of the things that we talk about and have talked about over the years on the show. So it'll be very interesting to get your take on some stuff. Let's just start very high level with you. You have so many credentials. Just This is more my own curiosity. Why did you choose to become an economist? Yeah. Well, it's actually in the first paragraph of the book, Money Magic, that just came out in January. I was thinking about becoming a doctor and uh, had to take introductory biology. And they uh, had me dissect a frog. <laughs> the idea was you, you put the, you sedate the frog, you cut open its chest, you reveal its heart, and then you put, I think, some acetylcholine or something uh, on the heart, you stop it from beating, and then you start rubbing it back to life. And so I did this the first time, I was horrified, and the uh, teaching assistant comes over and says, you did a great job, do it again, and this, and record. And so this goes on for like uh, two hours. We, I killed the frog and revived it about 50 times. When I left the uh, class, I was an economist. I was majoring in economics. <laughs> that was the uh, theory. That's so, great. you know, I just got excited by uh, economics ability to do good uh, things for, you know, for all kinds of uh, uh, entities, starting with households. Uh, and I got 
I'm very interested in personal finance. I do. I work on all kinds of topics from climate change, bank reform, taxation, social security, health reform. Written 20 books, uh, Money Magic's the 20th. So very interested in big macro issues, but also how can you help people using economics at the uh, household level? And so I started a company, uh, this uh, uh, financial planning software company. Our main tool is called Maxify.com, M-A-X-I-F-I.com. It delivers the economics approach to financial planning, which is very different from conventional planning. And I know your podcast is focused on people who are investing in real estate, and the program is set up to allow you to enter as many real estate investments as you have and to see whether, hey, does this make sense? How do I deal with the cash flow issues of that? But the basic idea of economics-based planning, and I'll just say this real quickly, four things. It's uh, and very different from what you would experience going to a financial planner or using their software. It's, first of all, what are your resources? We're going to figure out from those, including any real estate holdings you have. What can you spend on a discretionary level basis uh, after you've paid your, for fixed expenses, like um, paid off your debts and paid off your taxes and paid off, paid for the kids to go to college. Those are off the top expenses. So here's your uh, discretionary spending power. How do you smooth it out over time? So like a squirrel, you have the same amount of acorns to eat in the winter when you're retired and the summer, spring and, and fall when you're working. So that's consumption smoothing. And then the next thing is the software is figuring out uh, safe ways to raise your living standard, like being smart with social security, Roth conversions, uh, housing decisions, uh, real estate decisions. Is this going to make me more money on balance? Then the, the third thing would be, uh, how do you uh, deal with risk? How do you, uh, we have big inflation risk right now. Uh, how does that impact, uh, for example, the advantage of having a mortgage or not. And then the fourth thing, there's actually five legs here. The fourth thing would be pricing decisions like uh, marrying Joe versus marrying Frank based on my living standard. These are lifestyle decisions, but they all have living standard prices. And then the fourth, the last thing is looking at my investment risk. If I'm investing at risk, let's say 50-50 stocks and bonds, and I'm spending in an aggressive way through time, and the program lets you set you know, both things that you're doing, how does your living standard, if you do the Monte Carlo simulation, spread out through time as you're adjusting your spending every year in light of how well you're doing on the market? What's the downside risk? What's the upside risk? Is this worth it versus more conservative spending and maybe more conservative investing? So those are the five legs, smoothing, raising, insuring, pricing, and then looking at the uh, investment risk mitigating investment risk at uh, the downside. Well, there's a lot to chew on there. You've packed a lot into a, a very short period of time. So just to peel off a layer or two, uh, let's talk about consumption smoothing for a moment because it seems to be a very core part of your book and what you talk about. And I don't think a lot of people understand what you mean by that. So could you maybe just elaborate a little bit on what consumption smoothing is and why it's important in terms of your financial planning and thinking about retirement? Although I will tell you that there's probably a lot of people who listen to this show that don't believe in quote unquote retirement. They're happy doing what they do, live life, you know, continuing investing, whatever they may be, but they don't want to just sit on the sofa watching TV, eating popcorn. So you know, that's maybe a different topic, different question, but let's start with consumption. I'm of that view too. I think retirement is like financial suicide for a lot of people, but right. <laughs> maybe psychological suicide too. I'm 71 and I'm just starting to work going. I'm just starting out from my perspective. 
the uh, Great. I have a you know physically the ability to do it thank god and uh and a job with tenure so i you know i not everybody's in that lucky boat but the idea of consumption smoothing very simple suppose you just had a a 60 year old who had uh uh no social security nothing except a million dollar 10 million in assets and then the question is how can this person uh what can that person spend over the rest of their life year in and year out in today's dollars so on an inflation adjusted basis so that they can spend exactly the same amount every year that's pure consumption smoothing if they live to the maximum age of life let's say 100 so that's for 40 years now they may want their living standard to kind of be higher for a while and then when you're maybe at 80 start gradually decline our software accommodates that so not everybody wants to have a perfectly smooth living standard but what they don't want to have happen is they hit some point like 82 and all of a sudden they realize that they're out of money and they're going to have to drop from you know spending 80,000 a year to spending 10,000 a year that's consumption disruption that's the last thing an economics wants to uh, put people uh, an economist wants to put a person into that kind of position where their plan fails whereas conventional planning is all about plan failure how do i minimize plan failure it's like a it's like a let me figure out a plan for you where you're, where the chances of you're starving to death are really small. Well, an economist would be horrified by that approach. We, we never want anybody to get anywhere near starvation. So we wanna make sure that, that they can have, nobody wants to have their living standard drop like that. They, they don't wanna, uh, uh, you know, they want it to be a smooth and if it changes, it'll change smoothly, but not abruptly. That's the idea. And you can figure this out with advanced uh, algorithms, techniques, taking into account all the taxes. You know, so you might say, well, gee, that's a, kind of an easy problem. Let's just take the $10 million and divide by 40. But you can't, it's not that easy because you have to deal with federal and state taxes, Medicare Part B premiums. Uh, if the person had social security benefits, that would be incorporated. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, if you had real estate, one of the, uh, the money coming out of the real estate, there might be cash flow issues. He might be taking, uh, he might have, let's say, $2 million in, in, in the bank. Uh, a lot of real estate he wants to start selling when he's 80, uh, take Social Security mm -hmm. at 70, uh, take his retirement account money at 72. And he could have a high living standard uh, after, you know, 70, uh, it's up here, but down bef before 70, it's here because he can't get at that money. Uh, so maybe that that plan is just not optimal because it enta entails too many, too much of a cash flow problem. So let's uh, modify the plan and see if we can get something that's smoother in terms of the living standard. And the pr program, the program never lets you go into debt. Uh, so I don't, you know, the, um, and, and there's ways obviously to do deal with that. Uh, you, you could take your retirement account withdrawals earlier, that would be the thing to do and, and probably would save your lifetime taxes. And, the, and you could see that your lifetime spending could end up being higher because you don't wanna put all your withdrawals into a situation, in a position where you're in a very high tax bracket. Uh, you wanna try and smooth your tax bracket, uh, including the social security tax bracket, you know, social security is very discreet. You you got you reach some threshold of your modified adjusted gross income, and then all of a sudden you're paying taxes on Social Security. So right. whether a Roth is going to work for you or not depends on 
uh, whether or not you're taking Social Security. It's it's very individual specific. Um, but so but the book was is not kind of like um, here's how to run the software. Uh, the book Money Magic is for people that don't want to run software and just say, look, here's all the things I learned in 29 years uh, developing this program and running it for a lot of people and people running it and asking me questions because mostly we're selling it to households who are running it themselves. Uh, here's what I've learned, all the tricks uh, and uh, in black and white to raise your living standard safely and to make decisions uh, uh, appropriately. Right. Larry, I don't want to make too many assumptions here, but I would assume that the whole concept with consumption smoothing is that the people that you are talking to or focused on have predominantly all fixed income investments or assets. So they're tied to a fixed income. It may or may not be inflation adjusted, but here's the key thing I was thinking about. I would assume a lot of those are depletable, meaning that they only pay out for a fixed period of time, X number of years. I guess that's really my main question. And the reason I'm asking you this is in the back of my mind, I'm thinking for those people who have assets like income producing real estate that don't deplete, they continue to generate passive income year after year after year, is consumption smoothing less important to those people because they have an inflation hedge asset that continues generating passive income? Well, there's kind of two questions wrapped up in that. One is, you know, think yes. dealing with inflation. So let's set, set inflation away, aside for a second. But, you know, you might have a lot of real estate and you want to leave it for your kids, but you also want to spend, have a decent living, a certain living standard that you want to enjoy if you continue to live. So the program can let you specify end of life bequests. You can specify you're not going to sell the real estate assets, or you can specify that you are going to sell them. What you really want to see is, uh, gee, uh, if I leave this much for my kids, let's say, uh, if I don't sell these 10 properties uh, that I might own, what's my living standard going to be? And will be smooth and will be high enough, uh, or should I sell three of those properties, and at what ages would it be optimal in terms of my lifetime taxes, which of these plans, and you can set up alternative profiles, is going to give me the highest lifetime discretionary spending. That's the bottom line. Uh, there's two kind of things, which is lifetime discretionary spending, but also the smoothness uh, that you can achieve. And the program is uh, trying to, for any, any plan, it's figuring out the lifetime spending, so you can compare across plans, but then it also shows you the annual spending and you can see how, you know, the level and also whether it's perfectly smooth or not. And if you're all these questions that people that have real estate, uh, you know, uh, but then the, the other thing you're raising is inflation. So how do we protect ourselves in this crazy environment with inflation? I would say people in the real estate area who have real estate investments, including homeowners, if they can borrow more, in general, I'm a kind of an anti-mortgage person. If you read the book, okay. it's pretty clear that uh, in normal times when inflation is low, that uh, taking, for example, your stocks, even from your IRA, uh, let's say you're not in a penalty situation, you're 62, you could cash out your IRA, take those that money and pay off your mortgage. In normal right. times without high inflation risk, that might be I showed and I talk about a case in the book where I was able to raise somebody's living standard by about $70,000 or it might even have been higher, forget exactly the number, but because of the differential. In, now you might say, well, gee, that's crazy because the stock market is yielding such a high return compared to the mortgage. But on a risk adjusted basis right now, 
The stock market is yielding nothing in real terms, uh, and it's yielding 2.25% in nominal terms. If we're thinking about a 30-year uh, risk adjust, you take that stock money, you cash out your stocks, and you buy nominal treasuries for 30 years, you're going to get two and a quarter. If you're paying 4% on the mortgage, that's a you know 1.175 basis point uh, differential there, pure arbitrage opportunity. So you have to risk adjust. But now getting back to the inflation risk, given how, how much risk we're facing right now with inflation, having a bigger mortgage allows you to uh, hedge inflation because if, if inflation takes off, you get to pay back in watered down dollars. So how could you make an, suppose you had your real estate and uh, uh, what could you do to engineer an inflation hedge? You could borrow money on the real estate via mortgage. Yeah and then take that money and buy inflation index bonds. Uh, now, if, the, if inflation takes off, you win on the mortgage and you're safe on the investment on the inflation index bonds. And so that's a, a very good inflation hedge. Uh, and and uh, so people that um, are in the real estate business, I think should have bigger mortgages these days than what they would otherwise have as a hedge against inflation. Let me put it that way. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised to hear you say that, but at the same time, not surprised because that's my thinking as well, because you have an inflationary environment, you're paying off the mortgage every month and every year with cheaper and cheaper inflated fiat dollars. So it's really stacked in your favor to have that debt. Right. And I'll, I'll also add, and you know this, that when it comes to income producing real estate, it's your tenant that's actually paying your mortgage off for you, not you. If you've got positive cash flow, you're covering your expenses and debt service through the rental gross rental income. And so why not build a portfolio and have inflation increase the price and, and destroy the debt? Yeah, I mean, you're hedged, you mean, because you have a real asset, right? And the rental yep. income you can raise with inflation. And, uh, and, then you're, and then you've got this extra fill-up, which is extra twist, which is you get to pay back the, uh, the cost of the investment in watered-down dollars. Yeah. So for those people listening here that are in retirement or maybe let's just say approaching retirement and you know they've got different types of vehicles that they're going to lean on, you make a recommendation to delay your retirement by two years. I don't fully understand that. Why do you suggest people delay their retirement for two years? Well, it's, you know, it's very individual specific. So I never, I don't think I've ever said everybody should delay their retirement by two years. I think I've said right. everybody should, should see the living standard implication of retiring later and also retiring earlier because some people may just love being at the beach right and surfing if you can afford it you need to know the price of things i i make the analogy of suppose you went to a, a supermarket and there were no prices listed of any of the products and you went through you put and your cart would work like this you after you put a hundred dollars worth of groceries into the cart your credit cards automatically charged you don't have any option to, and then, so you're going to walk out of the store with a hundred dollars worth of groceries, but not a hundred dollars worth of value. The same thing when you're buying, putting your lifestyle decisions into your cart, you need to know what they cost because you're going to otherwise buy the wrong lifestyle. And that's part of, uh, you know, the title subtitle of money magic is more money, less risk, and a better life. The better life is economic says, let's price out decisions. So there's a chapter on, Married for money. There's a chapter called um, Divorce Without Divorce War. The first thing I talk about is understand how much divorce is going to really cost you. Price it out. Uh, I talk about the first chapter is called uh, My Daughter the Plumber. 
and pointing out that, that uh, plumbers now can make more on a lifetime basis in terms of their lifetime spending capacity than PCPs. So, you know, what do you want to do? You know, you still may want to become a PCP, but there's a lot of risk there because you're going to be borrowing. And if, you know, you can't stand the sight of blood at the end of the day, uh, you, you know, you, you're, you're going to be stuck with that student loan that can be horrendously large and you can't discharge it through bankruptcy. Uh, the, the government will, t- will attach your wages, they'll attach your social security benefit. When you're 99, you can be having your social security benefit docked because you haven't paid off your student loan you took out when you were 28. So it's all about risk avoidance uh, to your living standard and also you know, the smoothing and raising and seeing, you know, seeing how it spreads if you're investing at risk. And that, you know, with real estate, Real estate's obviously risky as well. So you have to kind of think through scenarios where the real estate does well and the real estate doesn't do well to understand whether this is a, uh, a good investment. I'm just trying to understand what you said about the plumber making more than you know, a, a professional like a doctor or someone. Mm-hmm. Is that because they're taking on debt or is it because there's some other element of risk that I'm just not picking up on here? Well, it's, it's really the cost of... Um, college, four years of college, and then you've got four years of medical school, then there's uh, three years where you're an intern and a resident, where you're getting paid a uh, pretty modest level, then you finally become a doctor, you get paid a pretty high salary, but now now you're going to be treated by the tax system uh, poorly, because you're going to be faced with a very high, you know, you're going to be very, very high tax bracket. So you put all that together, plus the borrowing, and, and the federal uh, student loan borrowing rates are very high. And especially for graduate school programs. Then there's also parental loans. You can only borrow around 31K as a college student, but then they're getting parents to borrow as much as, as the parents want to borrow to get the kid through college. And that, and that loan may end up in the kid's lap. I, there's no, you know, it's the parent's legal obligation, but it could be the kid's moral obligation because the parent could say, look, I borrowed all this money. Hey, congratulations, you graduated. We're at graduation ceremony. Uh, I've been paying the interest on this for the last four years. I don't want to tell you about this mortgage. It's uh, $200,000, but it's all yours. Now you've got a job and uh, you get to pay this off. I did my best. I, wanted, I didn't want to get you, make you anxious, but here's your $200,000 loan <laughs> that you have to repay. That may well be going on across the country. We have a huge increase in parental loans and the interest rate yeah. on those is re- really high. So it's like 5% right now when you can earn two and a quarter on treasuries. And then the, you know, the, to, to borrow to go to, go to a medical school, it's around also five, 6%. So this is terrible policy that the federal government's engaging in. The federal government is scamming people through that program uh, because 40% of the kids who start college never graduate. So I have a chapter that's called Don't Borrow for College. I looked at this carefully and i came to the conclusion that this is just far too risky for anybody to borrow to go to college any significant amount uh, beyond maybe five ten thousand dollars because 40 percent of the kids don't even finish college so why should i you know think about all your listeners where they borrowed they take out a mortgage to invest in a real estate property that right before they even invest in it they know there's a 40 percent chance that that thing is going to be worthless Right. Uh, they wouldn't even, they wouldn't get near it. They want to get miles near it. But that's what we've got 18 year olds doing, borrowing money 
to invest in something which ahead of time has a 40% chance of paying off nothing. Okay. Borrowing money for the privilege of having dropped out of college. Right. Well, you know, you're making me think here. For those listening here that are thinking about college or just starting college, and for the parents listening to this that have kids that are about to go to college, in your opinion, do you think college education is actually worth it for most people today? Well, it is if you're not, um, you know, if you're low income, you can get scholarships and grants. If you're high income, it doesn't matter. Your parents can afford it. If you're middle income, it's very expensive. And so, do I want to spend uh, seventy-five thousand a year going to? Well, I'm a professor at Boston University. I'll mention Boston University. Do I want to borrow seventy-five thousand dollars, my parents and me, to have them meet with me, or maybe go to a community college and take courses online for uh, certificates and grades? I give the example in the book of somebody who wants to get a job with IBM in quantum computing, and so should they go to a top school and you know, going to Hawk, or should they take 20 online courses for grades and certificates in quantum computing at Stanford, Yale, Harvard, MBU? They all have these programs and you can get a grade and a certificate. Now at the end of the four years, you don't have any student debt. You send your 20 certificates to IBM and say, would you like to hire me? I've done really well in all these programs. I know a lot about quantum computing, or would you like to hire the, the graduate in English from Williams College, they're going to hire you. So you would have gotten a, a top rate education because Stanford faculty are teaching, you know, <laughs> there's these courses, MIT. Uh, I'm sitting right now at MIT, I'm about to give a, a guest lecture. Uh, I know that they're top faculty teaching these online courses, especially when we're talking about things that are very technical. Uh, they're not going to just have anybody teaching about quantum computing. And those courses are right there available. So this is the kind of way yeah. you can get a top-notch education on the cheap. That's part, you know, as I say in the book, uh, the simplest way to make money is not to lose it. Right, exactly. So you cover a lot of ground in the book and we don't need to go into every area. So let's kind of start to wind things down here with something you talk about a lot. In fact, you even have a book specifically about social security, kind of a two-part question, but start with a specific question first you know how can someone maximize their lifetime social security benefits i know you talk about this and it's related to delaying it in terms of age right. what, what would you tell people well so there's a, a chapter called my 10 top secrets for maximizing your lifetime benefits in, in the money magic book so the you can't count on dying on time you have to think of your planning horizon as being your maximum age of life because uh, that's what e economics says. You, you know, you might make it that that long. A lot of people do. My mom died in '98. Yeah, the chances are very small. So then you respond to that by having by planning systematically to have your living standard drop uh, as you get older, not to drop off the the chart, but to drop smoothly. That's how we economists say you deal with that mortality risk optimally. But you have to worry about the worst case scenario, which is you do make it to a very old age, and you want to have insurance against that. If you wait, if you take your social security benefit at 62, you get one number. If you take it at 70, you get a, your retirement benefit, you get a 76% higher number adjusted for inflation. So there's an enormous gain from waiting. And you might say, well, I've just retired at 62. I've got my IRA in the stock market. I don't want to cash that out. I want to take social security early to get to have something to eat, eat from. 
Well, on a risk-adjusted basis, that's a, that's a mistake. On a risk-adjusted basis, the stock market's yielding nothing in real terms, whereas waiting to get Social Security at 70s got an enormous gain in real terms. It's just crystal clear that you don't want to be taking about 85% of American households should be American workers should be taking Social Security at 70, their retirement benefit, only about 6% are. So that's point one. Point two is we have 13 different Social Security benefits. Nobody knows about most of them apart from the retirement benefit. So you need to know your benefit because if you don't apply for all the benefits that are available, you won't collect them. They won't call you up and tell you. That's a big deal. Yeah. And then there's a whole lot of other secrets like widows are being systematically screwed out of potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars by not knowing to time taking widows benefits and retirement benefits so that they don't do it simultaneously if they're young widows. So, and then we're talking, if you think about people that are, have been furloughed and took social security early because they lost their job in COVID and now they got called back to work, they think they're going to lose all these benefits because of what's called the earnings test. But it turns out that Social Security, once you reach full retirement age, will reimburse you for all the benefits you lost under the earnings test. So it's like a fake false tax to induce people not to go back to work. It was implemented in a period where people thought there was a fixed number of jobs when to get kick the elderly out of the workforce and let younger people come into work. It's a terrible, terrible policy that people need to understand so they don't get conned into not going back to work because they think they're in a going to lose, you know, uh, 50 cents on the dollar in social security benefits at the margin. So there's lots of things um, that people need to know about social security because it's the biggest asset most uh, people have, financial asset. If you're low income, for middle income people, it's like the second biggest. And even for the rich, it's second or third largest financial asset. That begs the question, is Social Security being miscalculated by the government or is it really just a big Ponzi scheme or maybe both? Well, in terms of the overall financing, it's $59 trillion in the red. Uh, that's in the trustees report in Table 6F1 that came out two months ago. So it has the entire fiscal operation for the last seven decades in the post-war with under Republicans and Democrats, I would describe as a massive Ponzi scheme. <laughs> okay. You look at the fiscal position of the country in an overall comprehensive basis, put everything on the books, not just the official debt, but all the unofficial liabilities like Social Security. Like, I'm getting Social Security benefits. That's a liability on Uncle Sam. It's not on the books. It's not recorded uh, in the official debt. It's not in that debt clock that's in Times Squares, right? So, and it's like two and a half times the Social Security unfunded liabilities, two and a half times the official debt. Put everything on the books. We're short. 8% of GDP forever. So if we want to keep spending what we are spending, uh, what we, ha we have planned to spend in terms of outlays, we have to raise taxes by 8% of GDP. Uh, that's like a 40% across the board tax. Like every, every federal tax has to go up by 40, 50% uh, forever. That's that unsustainable. Shows you, that shows from you day, from day one. Or we have to cut benefits dramatically or spending but just to give you an example, Social Security, uh, all Social Security expenditures is about 4% of GDP. So we're talking about being short two, two Social Security programs. That's the magnitude of our problem. We're in worse fiscal shape than any uh, other country. You might say, well, this speaks to taking Social Security benefits early because they're going to be cut. But I don't think they're going to do that. I think they're going to tax the uh, 
raise taxes on the benefits, but not, not cut the benefits themselves. Uh, and uh, I've run simulations in our software where even if there's a 25% benefit cut starting in about 10 years, it still is uh, much better to be patient with your retirement benefit for sure. Yeah, I've heard it said that social security is more like so-so security. So that's the way I look at it. But I like the way you call it a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> it's a Ponzi scheme, but it's for at the individual level, it's maybe you know an enormous and for the rich and your I think your listeners are probably a higher income than most. We have to realize that in absolute term, uh, high income people have the most to uh, to gain from optimizing their social security. Hmm. That's an interesting statement. Yeah, I mean. Proportionally, it's a bigger deal for, for poor people, but absolute terms, in terms of absolute real dollars, it's a much bigger deal for the rich. And of course, if you're patient, you not only get a higher benefit for the rest of your life, but you have more of your resources are now coming inflation protected form because you know you get the coal every year. So in this environment, you gotta be doubly uh, careful about taking social security too early. You wanna right. be- this is the cheapest way to buy an inflation. The only inflation index annuity you can buy out there is by buying it from Social Security, by giving up benefits for a while, low benefits, to get a higher inflation adjusted stream. That additional stream is like buying an, a, a real annuity and the price is giving up the benefits uh, maybe for eight years that, that are lower. Larry, that's a golden nugget takeaway for our audience right there. So let's just wrap it up. Tell our listeners how they can find you, your work, your software, the domain name for that. And we'll put it all in the show notes as well. Okay. Well, the, um, the book is Money Magic. Uh, you can buy that Amazon. Everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> Money Magic, uh, Kotlikoff. Uh, the software is maxify.com, M-A-X-I-F-I.com. But if you forget any of this, just go to See if you can remember my name, Kotlikoff, and go to kotlikoff.net. And there's links to the software, links to the book and to other books. And uh, all my, every column I write, which I write a lot of columns for the media and also professional articles are all posted there. So uh, people can see everything I'm up to for better or worse. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we're going to put all that on the website and in the show notes. It'll be put in our newsletter. It'll be everywhere. So it'll be easy for people to click and find. But anyway, thank you so much, Larry, for your time. I know you have a talk coming up. I think you said at MIT. Uh, yeah. Is that, two. is that correct? Yeah. A couple minutes. Yeah. Well, it's been an honor having you on the show. We'll uh, probably have you back on later in the year or, you know, when it makes sense to see what, you know, is happening with uh, the economic tide that we're looking at here and Ukraine and all that. So thank you for taking your time and coming on the show today. Yeah, uh, love, love being with you, Marco, and happy to come back. Have a good one. Thank you. Stay safe. Bye-bye. You too. I hope you enjoyed today's show and our guest today, very interesting person. Honestly, I have a list about three times as long as what we talked about in terms of questions and things I wanted to uh, pick his brain on. It's an interesting perspective of actually asking finance-related questions to an economist because they see and view the world a little bit differently than I think other people who are in the financial space. So that doesn't necessarily mean I agree with everything or disagree with everything he has to say. I'm clearly in agreement with a lot of the stuff that he was talking about. Although I'm a big proponent and fan of having cheap interest rate based mortgages to acquire income producing assets that don't deplete that last for a long period of time, like income producing real estate, 
that you can literally buy and hold forever and forever I mean you know you hold it and you pass it on to your kids or your heirs and it just continues to generate income and is a good inflation hedge and I don't think he disagrees with that but you know his focus is certainly more on social security annuities the stock market the pros and cons of that and whatnot but anyways it's very interesting I'll have Larry back on in the uh, months to come other than that, if you haven't, remember to subscribe to the show, click that button. It literally takes you just two, three seconds. If you have questions about real estate investing, just let me know. If you go to PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com, you can click on the Ask Marco button or link and submit your question, and I will cover them in my Ask Marco episodes. If you haven't uh, been to the show for a while here, maybe just go to the catalog and catch up. You could pick and choose the episodes you want to listen to on the topics that are of interest. So you can go back at any time and just catch up on some of the stuff that we've talked about recently, especially the stuff related to economics and what is going on in our environment with inflation and the world. That is it for today. Thank you for tuning in and listening and we will see you all on our next episode. Are you on track to achieve your financial goals? Income-producing real estate is the most historically proven way to accumulate wealth and has created more financial freedom than any other means. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best turnkey cash flow rental properties. Our simple proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly income. Get your free strategy session with our knowledgeable investment counselors at noradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.